Well, the title of my message this morning is Overflowing with Joy. Overflowing with Joy. What makes you the happiest in life? You know, that level of delight that kind of bubbles up out of your soul and you can hardly contain yourself. For some, it may have been getting that first car. Remember that? For others, it might be the day of their marriage or maybe the birth of their first child. Still others may find joy in meeting their hero or favorite athlete or musician or movie star. For some people, it might just be sitting on a beach on a perfect day and doing nothing. Maybe it's graduating after a long course of study. Or on the other end, retiring after decades of 40 plus hour weeks. You know, for the Christian, of course, we would hope that we would all say that the moment we became a follower of Jesus was the happiest time of our life, the highlight of our life. Without doubt. But in the Christian realm, there is another joy too, which hopefully all of you have experienced and will continue to experience as you follow the Lord Jesus. It's a joy that Paul describes here in our text this week. It's a joy that bubbles up and out of him into the words of Scripture. So let's look at this joy in three sections this morning. First, I want you to see Paul's joy in relationship, verses 2 through 7. Take a look at those verses again with me. Paul comes, I think, in these opening verses to what, I, what is the most touching, the most tender part of this whole letter. Make room in your hearts for us. And when you hear that, if you've been here the last few weeks, immediately your mind should be clicking. That sounds familiar to me. It should take us back to chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. Look there where Paul says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Make room in your hearts for us. Then the rest of verse 2. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Takes us right back to chapter 6 again. Verses 3 and 4. Paul wrote, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. He's repeating himself. He's, He's emphasizing these themes. Back to chapter 7, look at verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That middle phrase there, I said before that you were in my hearts, takes us all the way back to chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Verse 2, where Paul says this, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. You are in our hearts. 
To paraphrase verse 3, Paul's saying something like this. Look guys, I'm not beating you down. I've already said to you, you're as dear to me as my own children would be. I am with you until the very end. You know, it's interesting that the last part of the third verse there, he says to die together and to live together. It kind of sounds, if you read that, uh, your first reading, it kind of sounds like something you might hear at a wedding, doesn't it? Right? You know, until death do us part, you know, all that. But of course, this isn't the beginning of the relationship. Paul's not making some opening vow to the Corinthians. He has lived life with them. He, he has spent time with them. He's sacrificed for them. He, he's been stabbed in the back by a few of them, frankly. And yet he still makes this affectionate claim. I am with you to die with you, to live with you. I'm with you. Verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. And here's my sermon title again. I am overflowing with joy. You know, one of the things children long to hear from their parents, as you all know, is I'm proud of you. And Paul has no problem saying that to the Corinthians. Now, now wait a minute, Paul. D didn't you read 1 Corinthians? You remember that letter? You know, for all their coldness toward him and all their inconsistency and all their stubbornness. But Paul doesn't view them as enemies or opponents or rivals. How does he see them? As beloved children, as dear friends, as soul mates. Look at all the superlatives he uses in verse 4 great boldness. Great pride, filled with comfort, overflowing with joy. And notice how Paul ties the very ending of verse 4 back to chapter 1 when he talks about being filled with comfort and in all of our affliction. Comfort and affliction. I am overflowing with joy. That, that, that should sound a little familiar to you too. Those, those ideas being put together, comfort and affliction. It's because it's been a theme all through this letter and it will be a theme continuing in this letter. In fact, in chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 5, Paul begins the letter with that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Do you hear what Paul's saying to him in these opening verses here? So sweet, so intimate, so affectionate. He's telling them here, you are the very instrument that God is using to bring comfort to me in my affliction. That's a huge statement. Would you agree? Especially coming from the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, just by way of, of, of implication here, you, you are the very instruments that God uses to bring comfort to those who are afflicted as well. 
You go to a brother or sister who's going through some serious hardships. Maybe they're going through cancer or some disease. Maybe they're going through some kind of marriage trouble or whatever the case may be. And you walk up to them and and you say, how's it going? And they start to unload on you. And, And you know what your first tendency is. Maybe my first tendency sometimes too. I didn't really want to know all that. You know, just a short fine would have been okay. But what you are and what I am, brothers and sisters, is God's means of grace to those in affliction. To be His comfort in their suffering. Instead of backing up and walking away, let me encourage you to to get near and sit down with them and let them unload and let them tell you what they're feeling and don't try to fix them and just just let God take care of that that fixing part. Just be an instrument of comfort to them. And that's what Paul's saying to these Corinthian Christians who have been a, a major problem to him. And yet, he still loves them and finds them to be God's means of comfort to him in all his afflictions. Look at verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, northern Greece, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So just after he tells them, you've been a comfort to me in my afflictions, he gives us a clear example of the kind of affliction he's talking about. What does Paul mean by the affliction being fighting without and fear within? We don't, we don't know for certain. We can could, we could make educated guesses, but it's likely there was some kind of, of social mayhem going on around him, some rebellion, some kind of uh, civil disruption going on. Certainly the, uh, the places he visited in Macedonia, Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea, uh, there was opposition to Paul. He was put in prison. There was, there was a lot of, of, of outside stuff. And of course, he had written this letter to the Corinthians too. Remember that severe letter that he had written to them? And I'm sure that that was on his mind. How are they responding to it? Are they going to obey? There's, there's, there's fighting outside of him and, and there's fear inside of him. You don't normally think of Apostle Paul as a guy who's filled with fear. But Paul says... There are moments there's fear inside. So he then relates how God comforted him through that in verses 6 and 7. Look on. But God who comforts the downcast. There's something to put in your refrigerator right there, right? Comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul had called God the God of all comfort. And here in verse 6, he calls him the one who comforts the downcast. This is who your God is, Heather Hills. Never forget that. What does Paul mean by downcast? One author put it this way. I think it's helpful. Paul's affliction resulted in his being cast down, despondent, stressed, tempted to despair, 
destitute. Humanly speaking, nothing was left to boast about. All was hopeless. But this is precisely the kind of person to whom the God of heaven is drawn like a magnet. Indeed, without denying God's omnipresence, the Bible teaches that the two places God loves to dwell are way up high in heaven and way down low with the destitute. This is where God lives. Sometimes God comforts the destitute directly. Other times, like in chapter 7, He comforts us through other people. Notice, God used Titus, first of all, to spread God's comfort to Paul. And then secondly, he also used the Corinthian Christians to spread God's comfort to Titus and through Titus to Paul. Paul was was likely not expecting the report that Titus brought to him. But imagine the relief that it must have been to hear of the Corinthians as he says here in verse 7, his longing, their longing, their mourning, their zeal for Paul. What a comfort that must have been to his soul after writing that hard letter to them. Now I know there's a lot of details that are being thrown in here and I, I think it might be helpful for us just to take a second and go through chronologically What's happening here? Just get the story kind of back in our minds. And so I want to go real quickly through 15 points chronologically that we see in this chapter that will help you to kind of see where this story is and how it, how it moves. Let me go through this quickly. So in verse 8 and 12, it's referenced here that Paul writes a letter. He writes that letter from Ephesus over in Turkey. To, to the Ephesians, that's 1 Corinthians, or, or it might have been that second severe letter that we don't no longer have. In verse 14, he says that he had boasted to Titus about the Corinthians. He told Titus when they were still together, oh, those Corinthians, man, they're great. Then Titus, verse 6, is sent to Corinth with that letter, right? The Corinthians, verse 15, welcome Titus, It says, with fear and trembling. Then, number five, when they hear the letter, verses eight and nine tell us, the Corinthians feel sorrow. They hear the rebuke from Paul. They feel sorrow, grief. Then, number six, they repent of their inaction about the wrongdoer. They rectify the situation. They show concern for Paul. That's the verse we just looked at, verse seven. It's also in verse nine, verses 11 and 12. Then, verse seven, Because of their response, Titus is refreshed and receives joy. That's the second part of verse 13. Now Paul has moved from Ephesus over the sea, and now he's in Greece, northern Greece. He's in Macedonia, and he is downhearted. He's downcast for a variety of circumstances. We don't know exactly what. Verses 5 and 6 that we already saw. Now, Paul and Titus meet somewhere in Macedonia, verses 5 through 7, probably Philippi, where Paul spent the most time. Titus reports on the Corinthian sorrow, that's verses 8 through 11, their repentance, verse 7 and verse 9, their obedience, verse 15, 
And he feels, Paul feels, his own affection for the Corinthians deepen as he's, or Titus feels his own affection for the Corinthians deepen as he's giving his report to Paul. Verse 15. So, hearing of the Corinthians' sorrow and grief, Paul at first regrets having written the letter. Second part of verse 8. But this regret is short-lived, right? First part of verse 8. As he learns of their repentance. And then Paul feels relief, comfort, and joy at the Corinthians' response. Verse 6 and 7 and 9 and 13 and 16. By the way, if you're trying to write all this down, don't. Uh, It's too much. But it's in my notes. If you want to pick up a copy of the notes back at the Information Center. Number 13, his joy is increased as he observes Titus's joy. As Paul sees Titus's encouragement, he's encouraged. Verse 13b. Then, 14, Paul feels relieved and grateful that his boasting to Titus about the Corinthians was justified. Verse 14. And finally, Paul assures the Corinthians that now they are blameless with regard to that whole affair. Verse 11. And he has complete confidence in them. Verse 16. So the text kind of jumps all around the chronology. And that's why I thought it might be helpful just to walk through the story of how that happened and how that's kind of fleshed out in these verses in different places. So with that context, let's keep moving through the chapter and see, secondly, Paul's joy in repentance. Verses 8 through 13. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul's first letter got a far better response than Paul had expected, as he says in verse six, or verses 8 and 9. And here is what Paul's referring to Back in verse 4, the Corinthian Christians were God's instrument of comfort to Paul in the middle of his own afflictions. Their comfort to Paul came through their godly grief and repentance. As we look at the next few verses, look first at verse 12 because it lets us know that Paul has a specific situation he's thinking about in mind. Verse 12, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness, everyone, for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. It's that situation he mentioned back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. It was a situation that Paul had written about back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You may remember, the Corinthians had been tolerating a man in their church who had taken his father's wife as his own. And they were proud of the fact that he was still in their church and living this way. And Paul rebuked them in 1 Corinthians 5, told them it was wrong, and he mapped out the way that they were supposed to act toward that man. And the Corinthians responded and actually disciplined that man. The very first sentence of verse 13 tells them that this comforted Paul. Therefore, we are comforted. Now look back at verse 10. 
And I want to pause for a moment here because of some of the, the truth that Paul piles into this. Notice what Paul says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So understand this, brothers and sisters. This is what brought Paul comfort. They had a godly grief that produced repentance. There are some important thoughts in these verses about repentance that I just want to point out. We'll move on. We could spend more time. But notice at least three observations here with regard to repentance. First, grief is not repentance. It's not the same thing. It could be the first step toward repentance, but it's not repentance. So feeling grief, feeling sorrow for your sin is not all that is needed to show that we have turned a corner. There are two men in the Gospel accounts who illustrate this well for us. Both of them betrayed the Lord Jesus. And now you know the two I'm thinking of. Judas betrayed Jesus for 20 pieces of silver. Peter betrayed Jesus in a very cowardly fashion in the courtyard while Jesus is being tried. He betrays Jesus three times. Both of them are sorry. Judas takes the 20 pieces of silver, runs back to the priest, and says what? I have betrayed innocent blood. He knows what he did was wrong. He's sorry for what he did. He gives them back the money. Peter is sorry too. And leaves the courtyard, we're told, weeping. What did Judas do with his grief? He runs off away from Christ's disciples out into a field somewhere and hangs himself. He's unforgivable in his own mind. But what does Peter do? He also betrayed the Lord Jesus. He stayed around Jesus' disciples. We notice that they even go fishing together. And then when Jesus is raised from the dead, what did Jesus do? Well, in John chapter 21, he sets up a charcoal fire. Interestingly, there's two charcoal fires mentioned in the Gospels. Both of them are in the Gospel of John. The first one is that there's a charcoal fire in the courtyard where Peter denied Jesus three times. John 18, 18. Then, Jesus, at another charcoal fire on the, on the beach, after his resurrection, says to Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter's response to the Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, right? Three times that takes place. And then Peter, according to John 21, is grieved that Jesus asks him a third time. He knows what Jesus is doing. But notice what Peter's not doing. He's not running away from Jesus to go hang himself or whatever else. He's right there and he's restored. Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. How do you know if you're experiencing godly grief or worldly grief? Godly grief 
according to Paul, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief leads to death. And that's not just physical death, by the way. It's the same thing. It's the opposite of what he refers to in, in the previous phrase. It's the opposite of salvation. If salvation's eternal life, this death is not just physical death. It's eternal death. It's separation from God forever. Worldly grief leads to that death. Grief is not repentance, but it can be the first step toward repentance. Second, a thing that we should notice here is that godly grief, um, the, the godly grief that produces repentance is an active grief. Look at the end of verse 8 and then verse 9. I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. That just means that the work that Paul accomplished through his letter was not in vain. It was an active grief. It was in, it was in the sense that it, it came to the end of its excuse making. It, ca- it came to the end of its minimizing. That's what we do sometimes, right? Well, it wasn't really a sin. It was just a little mistake on my part. It comes to the end of its blame shifting. Well, if you hadn't been that kind of a person, I wouldn't have done that, right? And it comes to the end of its, of its resistance, its stubbornness, its hard-heartedness. And it owns up to the fact that a wrong has been done and I have done it. You understand that? That's what this kind of grief does. It's an active grief. It repents of its sin. A third observation is that this godly grief is different from worldly grief. It seeks to right the wrongs. It seeks to correct the faults. It seeks to turn the corner. Look how Paul puts it in verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proven yourselves innocent in the matter. You've cleared yourselves, Paul says. You've shown that you've turned the corner. You've owned that what you did was wrong and you've turned away from it. And notice in this verse, it's packed in here, the seven ways that godly grief displays itself. Do you see them? Earnestness. This posture of of sitting at the edge of your seat. You're ready to do this. An eagerness to clear yourself. This strong impulse to, to respond promptly and wholeheartedly to correction. Uh, indignation. Th- this, this healthy state of being angered at wrongdoing. In this case, probably directed at the wrongdoer mentioned in that next verse. Fear. This concern about your shortcomings, the the alarm at the damage that's been done, again, probably directed toward that wrongdoer mentioned in the next verse. And, 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 And this longing that's mentioned here, this inner desire for relational depth and peace, uh, he mentions this longing again uh, in, in verse 7. Uh, the zeal, this, this energetic passion that, that drives the activity, that pushes you to do something. And then the punishment, this sober determination to see fair and just restitution accomplished. Again, probably focused toward the wrongdoer 
mentioned in that next verse. Here's the point. Brothers and sisters, just saying, I'm sorry for having done this or that is a good start. But the way of godly grief walks the hard path of change. The hard path of stopping wrong and starting right. And Paul found great joy in the Corinthians' repentance. Notice thirdly, his joy in reliance. Verse 13b to the end. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by, by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. You didn't make me look bad. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proven true. And his affection, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. That just means they took him at his word. They were serious about what he had to say, the message he brought to them from Paul. I rejoice, Paul concludes, because I have complete confidence in you. What a statement to the Corinthian church. After all they had been through, what a statement. Notice all of Paul's bragging, all of his boasting to Titus was backed up by their actions and that made him happy. Everything I said to him was true. You've made a comeback, Corinthians. That's why he's telling them, you've become reliable. I have complete confidence in you. And this is why Paul could unashamedly say what he said in, in verse 16. He also had said it at the end of verse 4. I am filled with comfort in all my affliction. I am overflowing with joy. I rejoice. Isn't that a great little story? This little inner dialogue between Paul and the Corinthians right here in the middle of this letter. I'm going to ask the praise team to return to the front. I want to give you just a couple of points of application to think about and then some closing thoughts and, um, and then we'll sing and move on. First, we need to recognize and embrace that often you are God's means of comforting those who are afflicted. Do you, do you embrace that as a Christian? As a son or daughter of, of the God of all comfort? Instead of trying, stepping away from that person and walking away and getting out of that mess, do you embrace it? Instead of closing your ears, do you listen? Do you sit with them? Do you weep with them? Not trying to fix them. We want to offer godly counsel in time, but oftentimes in the middle of affliction that you just need to be there and listen and love. You and I are God's means of comfort to the afflicted. You've got to embrace that. This is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Second, we need to acknowledge our sins against one another and exhibit godly grief that produces repentance. Instead of hiding our sins or minimizing our sins or pretending that we're okay and we don't do anything wrong, we don't make excuses, 
we admit our sins to one another and we repent of them. Especially in our homes, brothers and sisters, let our children hear us confess sins that we've done to them and see us change. They need to hear us say, I was wrong when I did so and so. Would you please forgive me? And how about your spouse? Instead of shifting the blame, pointing the finger back at them, or minimizing your sin, the right thing to do is to be specific about the thing that you've done that was wrong and ask him or her to forgive you for that specific offense. When I shouted at you when I came home from work and blew up in your face, that was wrong. Would you forgive me for that? Be specific about these things and ask them for help to make it better. Because, because it is hugely comforting and reassuring to them. And it's another way that God uses us to bring comfort to others in their affliction. So don't shy away from doing the hard work of restoration when you sinned. Embrace it. It is comforting to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now how do we bring this message to Jesus? You may have noticed, I don't know, maybe you didn't. You may have noticed that he's not mentioned in our text today. But I think there are at least two clear connections that we can legitimately make to our Lord Jesus. And we always need to look for that. First, verse 6 references the God who comforts the downcast. Well, guess what? This idea of God comforting the downcast and the afflicted is an echo of an Old Testament prophet by the name of Isaiah. And multiple times in the prophecy of Isaiah, we hear about the God who will bring comfort. In Isaiah 49, specifically verse 13, it says this, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth, Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Here's a question to ask. When would the Lord comfort His people? Now do a little Bible study here with me. Hang with me. You ready? Quick. 2 Corinthians 6.2. It's probably a page away. Look at it. Paul has already quoted from Isaiah 49. Same chapter. He referenced a day of salvation. Isaiah 49 is looking forward to the arrival of the servant of the Lord. That's what that chapter is all about. Later, in Isaiah 61 and verse 12, the Messiah is said to be the one who would comfort those who mourn. Jesus quoted that very passage, Isaiah 61, in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 to declare He was the Messiah. 
And of course, in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said that Christians would be blessed if they mourn, for they would be comforted. Speaking about a mourning over sin. Now put all that together, the primary way that God comforts us is through the work of Jesus as our Savior, providing forgiveness to those who mourn over their sin, who repent over their sin, who grieve with godly grief over their sin. Here's how evangelist D.L. Moody put it in the 18th century or the 19th century. He said, no matter how low down you are, no matter what your disposition has been, you may be low in your thoughts, words, and actions. You may be selfish. Your heart may be overflowing with corruption and wickedness. Yet Jesus will have compassion upon you. He will speak comforting words to you not treat you coldly or spurn you as perhaps those of earth would, but will speak tender words and words of love and affection and kindness. Just come at once. He's a faithful friend. A friend that sticketh closer than a brother. God comforts us in our affliction primarily through the work of Jesus, our Messiah. But there's a second connection, and it's a little more obvious, I think, in verse 10 in our text, where Paul tells us that repentance is a requirement of salvation. Now, of course, that salvation, we know, was provided by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So if you are here this morning, and you may feel bad about your sin, but you've never taken steps to turn away from it, and to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we would love to talk to you about how you can do that. Because you will be comforted and we will rejoice. And so will the angels in heaven, by the way. You know, Paul's also the one who wrote to the Philippians that to live, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we know that Paul's life was firstly and fully devoted to Christ. And Paul was, and we are chiefly comforted by the Lord Himself. Yet, God has also designed that as verse 3 told us, in life and in death, our fellow brothers and sisters placed into God's family through Jesus' saving work, those fellow brothers and sisters would also comfort each other in our affliction. And that makes life doubly sweet as a follower of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Because in life and death, we have Jesus. And He comforts us. And in life and death, we have our Christian family. And they comfort us through their faithfulness, through their obedience, through their godly grief that leads to repentance, through their encouragement, through their love. So let's stand together, brothers and sisters, and let's rejoice together in song 
that we belong to this amazing family that provides such great comfort to endure hardship and persevere to the end all the way through death to eternal life. Let's sing together.